When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today's Thursday, February 16th, 2023. I'm Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky coming to you from bookriot.com. So all the labor issues are solved, right, Rebecca? We're all, we're all good. Everything's fine. Uh, yes. Just, the, you know, very cool. It's just magically over. Yeah. Um. I guess the the lead publishing story of the week is that HarperCollins and their union has reached a tentative agreement. We don't know the details of it now, so there's not much else to say. But it is – I always find this as an outside observer of these kinds of union negotiations. It's picket lines and they're bad and bad faith. And then there's a there's a deal signed and everyone goes quiet and all it's fine. <laughs> I just I – there's something about the, um, the conflict avoidant in me that's like, is this – that's normal? That's fine. I mean, I guess I understand it, but it does seem strange. Yeah, I think it's that everyone goes silent and then everything is fine. That those are actually two separate things, but they or they can yes. be two separate things, but they look like one thing because it it goes from being very, you know, dramatic and sort of publicly visible to okay, there's an agreement and then not even all the details are released. You know, like what we do know is that there will be an increase in the minimum salary across an array of jobs. We don't know what that increase will be and that there will be a one-time bonus of $1,500 to union members. That's really Mm. all that has been addressed. The union was also making requests, demands, whatever language you want to use related to HarperCollins increasing their focus and the deliverables around diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workforce. There's no mention of that in this New York Times piece. So we don't know what that means. We don't know if they reached some agreement about it, if they ignored it, if there's something in between and they compromised. I'm not sure that we'll ever get those numbers because this uh, report came out on February 9th, this piece that we'll link to by Alexandra Alter and Elizabeth Harris. Long time. There's a shock. It's Elizabeth Harris and Alexandra Alter and and Elizabeth (laughs) Harris in the New York Times. (laughs) Talking about publishing in the New York Times. Yeah. but, you know, it's been a week since that came out and no further details have been released. Uh, I saw some of our contributors wondering aloud about this on Slack earlier today, saying you know, that they have noticed an in, an increase in uh, pitches about HarperCollins titles coming yep. into their inboxes, which certainly feels then like there are some folks back at work at HarperCollins that hadn't been or that, you know, folks are happier uh, than they had been. But it's all just reading tea leaves right now other than knowing that something has been agreed to and the really oh, the only number that we've gotten from that is about that $1500 bonus to union members but nice to see some progress I yes i'm glad i hope I, pe- I hope people are happy and sustainably so um we didn't really talk about this factor as we've followed this i guess, i'm guessing you wondered about this too is what actually could be codified in a union contract about diversity and inclusion because i don't know if people know enough about labor law even to know, it's harder and more complicated to codify something like that than you might think. You know, you hear hear Mm -hmm. what I'm saying about this, right? Like, you've got to be very careful 
um, for discrimination reasons about saying we want to hire black people for as an example you you can't discriminate based on race and reverse racism and blah 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 not not interested i don't think that's real but from a legal perspective you can get yourself into trouble um unless those things are very wor- or worded very carefully or you've really consulted with labor lawyers about what you can and can't say about hiring and targets and everything else like that it's it so I, if if it is not disclosed or doesn't it's not made public that there wasn't some sort of rider or clause about diversity and inclusion, I don't know that necessarily portends ill. I just don't. Yeah. I could, I could imagine a world where someone is advised, you know, we just can't, but we'll do X, Y, or Z. Or if it seems a little weaker than you would like, it's probably because it can only be a little weaker than you would like. Honestly, in some <laughs> yeah. Of these if places. I had to guess, if they were going to disclose anything related to that, I don't think it could be much more than we have agreed to set targets and develop policy, hiring yeah. policy around those targets. I don't know that they would want to publicly disclose them in a company as big mm-hmm. as HarperCollins. I don't know if you would want to disclose those targets to all of the individual employees. You know, like we have a 20 person staff and that's a much different mm-hmm. proposition for us to say, here are our targets. Here's how we arrived at them. And not for nothing, when you have a 20 person staff, one or two hires makes a really meaningful yes. difference. Huge difference. Towards, you know, shifting the balance more towards the DEI goals that you have. But it is tricky there's some like interesting uh mental gymnastics that you have to do around like you can have a target but you can't make a decision based on the factors of that target we you know we had consultants help us develop our hiring policy i am sure that a corporation as large as harper collins has all kinds of legal and other advisors helping them figure that out so again yeah i I would not assume that not hearing something about it means that harper collins doesn't care or that they're not trying with it but what that trying legally can look like versus what you think it should be able to look like from a an outsider's perspective there, there is an ocean of difference between Mm -hmm. those two things and it was it's frustrating and weird and fascinating yeah yeah and it you know also it may not be that the first thing the union abandoned was the diversity or inclusion requests demands objections Mm -hmm you know, interests or, or priorities, sometimes you can sign a contract on things you can sign a contract on and the yeah. things you can't, you can't. Um, so I hope everyone also cares about those things and you can still care about them and care about them over time dynamically and importantly, but in terms of what you would want a company or a union to say coming out of this when they've made it a priority, temporary expectations about how ambitious and specific, I guess, for lack of a better mm-hmm. term, those things can be. Um, all right, let's do our first uh, sponsor break and come back to some some other news. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. 
But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Elena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Um, after pocketing a cool $200 million for doing nothing, not being acquired, <laughs> nice work if you can get it. Uh, Simon & Schuster is officially back on the market, um, doing very well as well, though interest rates are up, so I don't know what multiple, blah, blah, blah. I don't think I really care. I don't really care about what price they're going to get. Um I'm not sure there's much for us really to dig into here except to spin out into a game of wild speculation, um, which is, hey, welcome to the show. If you got to pick where Simon & Schuster went, Rebecca, what are you picking? I'm assuming they're going to get spun out. They're not going to be a part of what yeah. company they are now, and they're not going to PRH. Everything else is on the table. What would you like? What would you? What do you think? And what would be the most interesting? If those are all three mm. the same, that's cheating. You can do that, but that's that's not fair to me. <laughs> who came up with this game. And uh, secondly, I think it's really an abnegation of your duties as a, as a podcast host. But other than that, oh, do wow. whatever so you want. So no pressure. No pressure on how I but It's not pressure question. so much as um, ethical. You know. High expectations. I won't be mad. I'll be disappointed. Oh, that's a, you know, that's a solid, reliable move. I yeah, see you over there. That's right. Um, you know, I think that the direction it seems Simon & Schuster is going here, which they've indicated that they'll focus on courting private equity firms, I think that is the right call. Uh, it avoids another round of shenanigans with possible antitrust, like what they encountered with PRH. I think that if I were, I have forgotten the three questions that you asked me to answer about the, <laughs> the, the three What's, vectors. What you would like to see happen, what you think uh -huh. is most likely, and what would be the most interesting? Mm. I would like to see it go, I think, to a private equity firm. I have been heartened yeah. by the success that James Blunt and the firm that own Barnes & Noble have had with the Barnes & Noble turnaround. That's been interesting to see. You know, a private equity firm who has somebody working there or who can hire somebody working there who is familiar with publishing or, you know, what Simon & Schuster is trying to do and bring a fresh lens. That seems to be working. I'd like to see that happen. Um, I think it would be interesting to see Simon & Schuster merge with another player in the publishing space. I haven't given it mm. a whole lot of thought because I don't think it's sure. very likely. Um, but somebody, I think potentially, I'd, I'd be talking like merger, not Simon & Schuster be acquired. So now we're in the realm of what would I, just what would I like to see, I guess, yeah. in sure, an alternate fine future um is simon and schuster merging with a, a smaller publisher or maybe some somebody that does different kinds of books a little less commercial and to like if you're going to voltron two publishers together voltroning two publishers that do complementary things rather than two publishers that do pretty much the same thing just at different yeah. scales which is what simon and schuster and prh would have been that would be interesting and i think it would cut down on concern about how much this would compress the market because it's not like oh well we've a, we've acquired an imprint that does the same thing we already have an imprint for so there's some redundancy if you can avoid that and look at more new opportunities and creative problem solving 
what I think is likely is probably that Simon & Schuster goes to a private equity firm. It's clear that Paramount is going to try to offload it. They're very video focused. Mm -hmm. Um, If there is a buyer, you know, that can give them the kind of price they're looking for, they're going to sell SNS. I think it's most likely to go to, yeah, to to something like private equity because there isn't really another publisher positioned to pay the kind of money that Penguin Random House was going to front for this. Yeah, I I think that's right. If you before all this, even even before the PRH thing, I thought it was most likely that there'd be a Harper Collins plus Hachette plus Macmillan, one of the other gets involved. I just don't know that they have any confidence at all that that would get past antitrust, right? Even if they yeah. could. Okay, so it's not PRH. From a just sort of like layman's point of view, it doesn't feel like SNS and Hachette merging is the same as PRH and Hachette because that's about PRH, not about Simon & Schuster. Right. That's what the problem is because they're always they're already so much bigger than everybody else. That's probably the that probably is the least interesting situation which Macmillan gets rolled into SNS or vice versa, but they're also equivalently sized after that that it's hard for Harper to buy them. Right. Plus, they already bought um, Workman, right? So they already took one. Hachette taking one or Hachette bought Workman? Anyway, it doesn't really matter, except it's not a big fish eating a little fish. It's easier for big fish to digest little fish. Fish of equivalent size have a hard time digesting each each other and getting the cash (laughs) together and everything else like that. Um, Private equity... Private equity can go multiple ways. I think Barnes & Noble looks like a success, success story now. By the way, James Daunt is the CEO of Barnes & Noble, not James Did I say Blunt, James Blunt? Said. <laughs> yeah. Just, I know you knew that, but I just don't want to get emails about it. <laughs> Thank James you. James Blunt's yeah, an English <laughs> musician. No, it's okay. Yep. <laughs> um, but private equity can also go very badly, right? Are they going to strip down That's and sell true. it for parts? You know, private equity is not a monolith. Um not that I'm here out caping for private equity. I'm just saying like, it can go several <laughs> yeah, different ways. That would, well, I mean, it, it can go very badly, right? What is, the, what is the nature of private equity? What do they want to do? Do they want to acquire it, reorganize it, and then spin it out as a public company? That could be possible. You know, Scholastic's publicly traded. I don't know That's that it makes sense. Any, any situation in which Simon & Schuster is more independent rather than less, I think is what I would want mm-hmm. on the whole. Um, I probably think it's going to be acquired by private equity. If it's a stable of long-term companies and a portfolio for that private equity firm, I think that would be okay. It could, it could effectively run what seems like Barnes & Noble is being run right now. I don't know. Is the private equity firm happy with Barnes & Noble? We don't know this, right? No, we don't know what question. their goals are. We can be told anything. We're hearing a lot of stories about how it's sunshine and rainbows over there. But what's the exit? Most private equity firms don't plan on holding their portfolio companies forever. That's more of a holding company strategy, which is a little less common. Anyway, I'm getting into the weeds here. (laughs) But the most interesting thing would be, speaking of Barnes & Noble, they relaunched their Union Square book imprints. What if Barnes & Noble's like, you know what? We'll take Simon & Schuster. Hmm. We're we're going to vertically integrate. The cowards at PRH never open their bookstores that we said they should, right? to defend against mm-hmm. the Amazons, mm-hmm. Barnes and Nobles of the world, to be vertically integrated so we, d- we, have, we can skip the middleman and get in front of the customer in the way we've always wanted to. We're going to deal with the, the, the cries of the independent booksellers, which I would understand it would be perfectly natural and maybe even warranted, but we're going to become an inter- vertically integrated book company. 
where we acquire, market, and sell um, books. That would be the most that would interesting be thing to happen. Fascinating. And the name you didn't mention there is how much would Simon and Schuster care about Amazon and upsetting Amazon <sighs> in that calculus? Because that's presumably a, a not insignificant part yeah. of PRH not going fully. Like nearly as aggressive right. as they could about even just the mm-hmm. fact that you can buy their books on the PRH website. Like trying to get people to buy books directly from publisher websites, it's a whole other thing that I think is really an exercise in futility. And we can yes. save that for another day. But if PRH had opened their own like bookstore and tried to compete with Amazon, as we have yearned for for years, would have been super interesting and a real flex against Amazon. I would guess that if Simon and Schuster has even considered that, they're probably hesitant for the same reasons. If Barnes and Noble were to buy them, would Amazon not carry any books yeah. published by Simon and Schuster Barnes and Noble? Or would, you know, customer demand sort of push them to do that anyway? How much influence would Amazon have on a publishing company owned by Barnes and Noble by a, a competitive retailer is a fascinating question. I would love to see that happen. Yeah, I'd love to see it for the mess. I mean, I don't yeah. know that for, it, for the content, just, the content would be yeah, fascinating. The, the what would happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right that in the different, well, there's always a chance that Amazon's, you know what? We're not going to carry Stephen King. Have fun with that, by the way. Si- Stephen right, King is the marquee luck. author in the Simon Schuster portfolio. I also feel like Amazon cares less about books than they did five years ago or 10 years ago. Something like this five or 10 years ago, Amazon would have seen this as a real defense of the turf. Do they care enough to care about? Yeah, it's a, this great question you know one of the mentions that i saw in a piece about how harper collins is having a bad year was like a one line kind of throwaway about how their ceo attributed some of that to like difficulties with amazon inventory and so i don't know if amazon is like there's a million things that could mean (laughs) i don't i I don't even Mm -hmm. really want to guess what that means but it could indicate that Amazon is less invested in the book customer and in the loss leader that they had had in books. They may not need that nearly as much as they have needed it in the past. I'm not sure. Um, But it could, if they have shifted a little bit, they might not care as much about a publisher going to going somewhere else or, you know, taking some of their titles. The, The Simon and Schuster books are already being sold at Barnes and Noble. So yeah, the, it would only really be a difference of who is, again, Barnes and Noble kind of double dipping in that case um, from selling them. Well, and to let me be customer. clear: there's a zero percent chance of this right. happening because Barnes right, and Noble right. is owned by a private equity company, so it'd be the private equity company buying it. it <laughs> this is it's not going to happen. Down. Right? Yeah, it just it just wouldn't happen. I don't know even what the value add would be necessarily. I always thought it'd be more interesting for a big publisher to buy Barnes and Noble than vice versa. Just to guarantee an outlet, mm-hmm. right? Especially in the in more of an emote building defensive situation than an aggressive growth oriented one. It's like if we subsidize essentially or we're a part of the value chain where we can make sure that there are thousands of big bookstores across America, which for a while we weren't sure the Barnes and Noble is going to exist. Mm-hmm. But now that they seem healthy, the marginal value of that to a publisher is probably lower. It's like what in some some piece of the acquisition price would be essentially an assurance premium that those doors stay open. Well, I don't have to do that now. So anyway, but that would be the one. Some, some major alignment of a publisher and a retailer mm-hmm. would be the most interesting thing. 
I guess another piece could be something like another big media company, but no one's interested in this now. Media multiples are being compressed. Media is very expensive, or uh, uh, the media business is very tough right now. So, you know, Disney has their own publishing arm. Netflix, does, I mean, who's going to, what media, New York Times, like, who's got the scratch to do it, um, to make it as part of some other... Um, yeah. situation I don't really know. So Something like, I think private equity makes the most sense. Yeah, some big retailer that's not a bookstore would be interesting and also not going to no. happen. Like Target no. buys Simon & no. Schuster. Dropping the bucket. Big outlets Dropping for all those Colleen Hoover titles. <laughs> well, that's the other thing with Colleen Hoover. You don't even get them all. Some of them are Hachette. Right. Some of them are Amazon Montlake. Like that's a whole... I happen to be writing something about this right now. Preview of things to come. Um, but if you've got a great idea for um, a Simon & Schuster landing place or if you have a strong opinion or something we haven't considered, um, even even as a pie-in-the-sky sort of way, a podcast at bookriot.com. Uh, do you want to do – I don't know. Is there anything else to say about their sales? They sold a lot of books. Yeah, they had a good year last year. Audio grew yeah. a lot, owing mostly to Bob Woodward. And then, of course, they have a bunch of the Colleen Hoover – books. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know this, Jeff, but Colleen Hoover had a pretty good 2022. Man. Um, they have, they have um, Taylor Jenkins read in her lone novel. So that's nice for them. <laughs> yeah. That debut. Um, We've been waiting for could... it for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess in, I guess going on the media's hard tip. Um, Catapult. Uh, this is a piece by Sophia Stewart, also in Publishers Weekly. Um, Catapult, an interesting company, and I haven't really – I've always had them as an interesting company in mind, but I've never kind of looked squarely at how much I admired what they've done and how unusual it was. So Catapult was – I think started out as an online magazine that added writing classes to support the online magazine or as another sort of a, a value proposition, something else they could do and bring in some revenue, and then lastly got into book publishing. Is that your timeline on the, on the whole? Is that yes. how they got into this? Do I have that That mind? is my understanding. Um, they they also have three imprints: uh, Catapult, Counterpoint, and Soft Skull. Um, Allison Forbes is the publisher. Uh, disclosure: someone we've worked with when she was at different things and at Catapult. Anyway, I know I know Allison a little bit. That's all I can say. Is is a decent um, and forthright person, as much as I said. A very hard week for Allison Forbes, I would say at this point. Mm -hmm. Were they shuttering the online magazine, the writing classes? Um, I think this sounds to me like they've got one part of the business that's doing well. The other things are tough, and I've kind of taken as read that they're focusing on the book business part, not that the book business isn't also taking getting some cuts as well. It sounds like there's some reductions happening. I don't know, Rebecca. I, the online content is damn hard. It's just it's, so hard. It is. It's so the, hard. The online media landscape of Ugh. literary magazines, even harder, but really like online education, if you think about the writer's workshops, that has changed so much since 2015. Yeah. YouTube is such a source now. TikTok is a huge source. There are a lot of places and just community hubs where people go and learn from each other for free mm -hmm. that have sprung up as this version of the web has really matured. And so I, I remember 2015 when Catapult was coming on the scene and knowing writers that were either taking or teaching some of those classes. 
MFA programs continue to be a thing you're competing with if you're doing something like this as well. There's just a lot of there's a lot of options for writers in that space. And the more connected the internet becomes, the harder I think it is to offer something like this where you're charging money for things where people can connect often to people who are like very successful or high profile in whatever that area is and learn from them directly. It's super interesting to see this flow, you know, that they started Mm -hmm. as the online magazine and with these classes. And then in 2016, merged with Counterpoint Press and and Soft Skull, which had been separate entities, and that it's been that success, like kind of an interesting case of a merger here, shoring up the business. I don't think people were nearly as upset about Catapult merging with two other publishers or talking about no, you know, condensing no. in the industry contraction because they're all small to begin with. Um, but this is a case where it probably really shored up Catapult. It might have shored up Counterpoint and Soft Skull as well. I'm sure they mm-hmm. all had reasons for entering into that merger. But I think this is the first time that we've seen in the publishing space, something like this, where a sort of publishing adjacent company that had both books and then online media folded something. And the thing that they folded was the online media. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. Um, the, the backstory of catapult is interesting too. I don't know the whole story, and I don't know what their current corporate structure is, but Catapult was founded about 10 years ago. Oh, it's actually in this piece, um, mm-hmm. 2015, yeah. now that I'm looking at it, by Elizabeth Koch, daughter of Charles Koch of the Koch Industries, mm-hmm. which, if you don't know, it doesn't matter, except say this, these are deep-pocketed industrial tycoon-type families. Literary magazines especially are, are often um, launched under the aegis of a wealthy benefactor. I don't know. Maybe they were tired of losing money. I mean, I'm just putting it yeah, out there. Maybe they were totally tired of possible. losing money. I don't know what the corporate structure is. Someone else took different interest. Maybe this is a part of some other kind of prepping for a transaction or becoming independent or something else. But I don't know this means necessarily anything other than looking at what's working and what's not. Mm-hmm. It may portend some kind of other ownership change. That's, that's another thing that I'm looking at here. They could be getting ready to sell it or to buy other things, um, oftentimes before a merger acquisition of some kind, you tighten the, you trim the sales. Um, and this looks like it could be that. Also, anytime a wealthy benefactor starts something, in the beginning, it's all sunshine and rainbows, and we're committed to the literary <laughs> arts and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know what? Billionaires get to do a lot of stuff with those billions they of dollars, do. and their interest flags, or something else happens, and they're not as interested anymore. It's... This is as tale as old as the Medici's and the Renaissance. Of the, <laughs> yeah, this is the benefits. like imagine. This is a story. The, yeah, imagine one of the kids on Succession started a literary magazine seven years ago. Yeah, that's kind of what we're. I talking would re- about I would here. love that. So I would love that subplot. By the way, if Shiv is like, I'm buying LitHub. Or we get like a flashback to Shiv in 2015. <laughs> Yeah. Starting her lit yeah. mag. Yeah, maybe Coke Industries will buy Simon and Schuster. <laughs> That would be met with um, acclamation and well, hosannas, don't you think? Everybody loves the Coke Industries people. And that's K-O-C-H if you're listening to us like the K-O-C-H. Soda. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know. I mean, we're particularly attend to this because this is the water we swim in. We know how hard it is. And, you know, online people are like, woe is me. This is terrible. And I'm, I'm sure it is terrible. On the other hand, that you started and ran an online literary publication for almost right. a decade— Kudos. Not a small Kudos. accomplishment. 
and yeah. and launched a, and had a very catapult counterpoint and soft school they published a lot of amazing stuff and, yeah really interesting books and i'm glad that they will continue really interesting books in the book publishing yeah. space um i mean maybe i mean when the the promise of the internet, I think part of this is like the the promise of the internet of especially when it came to literary magazines and outlets, what seems so awesome, and it just hasn't turned out that way. Mm-hmm. It just it just in twenty in twenty, I don't know oh oh nine or something oh ten when we were blogging and there's things like this and things were coming out. Like you can basically get distribution for free, and you don't have to print, and everyone can find you. And it just turned out that the the dynamics are the same. The money's not there. The advertising's not there. There's not as many people are going to sign up for your magazine. The underlying dynamics just didn't change, Rebecca. They just didn't. It's sad. Well, it just didn't change that it, much. It is, and it's the distribution piece. I think was a big deal, and especially yeah. for like up and coming writers, like that there was just an explosion of publications mm-hmm. that you could submit your work to, and then you know it's easier to get published in something once you've been published in something else. So that opens yep. doors for a lot of people. That's Maybe right. you get your first piece published by Catapult, and that's the thing that makes it easier for you to get published in the Paris review the next time around mm-hmm. or the New Yorker or submit your essay collection to a publisher to go you know all out and have a book published and that kind of promise that did a lot for many writers that distribution made a lot of things possible the thing it didn't do was get more people to read literary magazines nope and, no it did not <laughs> and you have this like basically the same number of people interested in reading literary magazines but then they have 10 or 20 times, maybe even more than that, as many to choose from, it becomes very difficult mm-hmm. to compete and to get that, you know, that zero sum game of eyeballs to come to your literary magazine. That's just such a hard business to be in. And I think, as you said, you know, earlier in this conversation, I think we can take it as read. It doesn't seem that there's any like shady things going on at Catapult. This doesn't look like shenanigans uh, from the outside. It, it looks like they must have been doing some just analysis of what is working and what isn't. That's not to say there couldn't be secret shenanigans because, you know, Coke Industries, who knows? Um, who but knows? This, this is a decision that makes a kind of intuitive sense, I think. It's not surprising to see someone be like, hey, no. guess what? We have, to, we have to close our online literary magazine. <laughs> if PRH announced tomorrow they were buying Catapult, would you be shocked? Oh. I mean, they didn't get Simon. This isn't, get, this isn't regulatory scrutiny I think situation. I'd be, uh, I'm furrowing my brow because what is PRH yeah. getting from having a literary magazine? No, no, I mean the book group. Not, not oh, all that stuff. Oh, I mean what's oh, left here. What, he who remains here. The yeah. publishing. Is, yeah. Uh, they may ever be distributed by PRH, actually. If, do you remember? I would be like, okay. Be. <laughs> I don't yeah, know that okay. it would make much of a difference yeah, doesn't make to anybody's experience in the industry mm-hmm. or to readers, especially. Well, so, so part of this is news, but also I, I just wanted to salute. Catapult did a lot of really yes. good stuff online. Um, I read a bunch of it. I've read the books. I always want more publications doing book-related things. I think that's good for everyone mm-hmm. to have as many players and voices and outlets um, working on stuff. I'm sad yeah, to see them go. Always willing to have a sharp 
perspective. Yes. Um, there wasn't a whole yep. lot of like catering to keeping readers comfortable. And I always appreciate seeing a publication do that and allow writers the space to, you know, ask difficult questions, to write difficult kinds of pieces. And they, it, it is important, I think, artistically for literature that yeah. we have those places where writers can go and do stuff that's maybe not commercially appealing and shiny. That does make the business of it difficult to find success for a magazine like that. But it, it, they have done a lot of important and interesting work. And I'm glad that we got to be I got online at the time that Catapult was yes. online. It's cool to have gotten to see that whole that's run. Cool. You know who's not online? Indigo's book sales. Oh boy! <laughs> um, Hell of a segue. Some group of hackers has been making the rounds of soft targets, mm-hmm. and they hit Macmillan. And you know what? Who really has a lot of credit card information, and we could really hurt by taking their crap down is a bookseller. And it sounds like I don't know that any of these booksellers are more or less secure, or more or less diligent about having their their um, their their stuff together. But Indigo's online book sales have been down for a week as a, a consequence of a cyber attack, only able to do cash payment in stores. So you can't, you can now use a credit card in a store, but but before that, you were like last of us it. You were bringing your cash <laughs> money in to trade it for books. What a mess, Rebecca. What can you- Truly a nightmare. I mean, what, what is Barnes & Noble doing today to say, we don't want to be next on this list? What or was what Barnes & Noble what is doing PRH, February 9th when this happened? I mean, yeah. this is a disaster. This piece, um, this is not an outlet I know much about, CP24. I think it's a local Canadian outlet. But the I was looking for a, someone to link to, I guess it's a Canadian press. Mm-hmm. And they said, the risks of reputational damage are growing. And I think that's the right lead for this. Yes. Like, how long yeah. can you not take book sales before people are like, I'm not going back to Indigo to, to get right. the book they, I was going to order online? They quote uh, a retail expert named Lisa Hutchison who says, I think there's going to be some fallout on reputation, but I think that can be offset by all the things that they did do right in terms of being transparent. They in- informed the customer quickly and like, that's great. Also, it's obvious if we can't buy our books on your website, yeah. <laughs> what's happening or that something has happened. Um That's a lot. It is a lot of reputational damage because you don't just lose the book sales from that day or now from the last eight days where people have landed on the website and hoped to buy something. It's probably a pretty safe assumption that most of those people weren't like, oh, you know what? Guess I'll just hoof it down to the closest indigo and take some cash out of the ATM. Those purchases either (laughs) didn't go anywhere or they went to a retailer other than indigo. And the next time any of those people want to buy books the next time they have an intent to purchase will they try indigo or will they just you know go to whatever that other place is online where now they have an account because they've bought some books there already it would be fascinating to see like stats about the impact of this over time um we won't get them but in my ongoing wish list of things people would track and tell us about later (laughs) What kind of impact yeah. does this have? Like, obviously, there's a bottom line impact if you just can't sell things for right. more than a week. That's this is hair pulling out, hair on fire levels of stuff. I imagine at all the Indigo corporate offices. Um, mm-hmm. But what what it looks like three or six or twelve months from now, if they have a way to determine any loss of ongoing customers from that, just really. I would not want to be in any of the important corner offices at Indigo right now. That's this is a tough no. spot. 
if you go to their webpage, it's just this giant blue banner saying, sorry, and here's what's going on. Also, there's in French because Canada, which is fascinating to see. But you can't browse the store as far as I can tell. They're not even letting you. Oh, you they can't just, even It's try. just a big yeah. banner. You can't even try. It's, I mean, I haven't clicked around on it too much. Indigo recently experienced a cybersecurity incident that affected our systems. You think so? It affected your <laughs> systems? You can't sell any damn books. That really I, you sucks. Know, as the public relations are who doesn't really know anything, but I always critique other people's public relations, right? There's nothing easier to do than critique other people's messaging and then to spend other companies' money. But mm-hmm. what if you just said, we were hacked? Wouldn't you garner more sympathy? Yeah. Other than a cybersecurity incident? Right, because cybersecurity minimizing. Incident, right, that can mean something know. that we did broke. One of our systems went yeah. sideways and we didn't realize it and we can't fix it. I think if you are, if you're going for full transparency, go for full transparency. Say, this was taken down by hackers. We are doing the best we can. Mm-hmm. Please go to your ATM and hoof it down to your local Indigo. <laughs> uh, Indigo said that it's changed its in-store payment technology as part of the incident response. Can't do returns, can't do exchanges. Oh, gosh. I guess if you were going to pick a week, probably the second week in February is the one you would pick as Indigo. <laughs> one of the slowest weeks of the <laughs> year. True. Um, wow. Uh, there Apparently, would... there was another Canadian company that got hacked, and it's called Empire. But just in terms of cost, it cost them $25 million, <sighs> and that was after their insurance to oh, get out God. of this. What a nightmare. Because it's, 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 assuming I know what's happening here, you get hacked and you're being held ransom, right? Yeah, I don't know if we talk about this situation. enough about how this often happens. This is a, mm-hmm. They're saying, we're not going to give you the password until you fo- fork over you know, Canadian dollars, this many Canadian dollars. Um, the average cost of a successful cyber attack for a small business is 25 grand. Indigo is not a small business. No. They're quite a large and uh, come just to here. Godspeed to their frontline booksellers who are having to explain oh. this to people who just wander into an Indigo and want to throw something on the old MasterCard. <laughs> it sounds like the credit cards are fine now. You can go in there and, and use your credit yeah. card now, but it, that wasn't the case for a while. That would right. not have been. Or that fun. you can't do um, a return or an exchange. Like that was <sighs> returns and exchanges aren't a big part of daily business, but it's something that happens not. every day, and. And people yeah. are usually, you know, trying to offload something that they don't want or don't need. And Customers cannot... are cool, though, Rebecca, when they're coming in to get their 17 oh, bucks yeah. back. Especially after the last three years that we've all lived through, people yeah. are just extremely cool in customer service They've situations. got their head screwed on all yeah, the way and pointed in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. All right. Well, there's that story. I, I, do, I do hope Indigo gets it. Yes. This, is not, good luck. this is not something you wish on anybody at all. Um, bad job, yeah. hackers. Uh, let's do a sponsor break and talk about Frontlist. I got a couple things to talk about, Rebecca. What do you What do you have on Frontlist foyer for us? This I've week? also got a couple. You want to go first? Sure. Um, I read Victory City by uh, mm. Salman Rushdie. Amazing, really good. I'm so, so glad, glad to, to report it. that it was good. It it it's. Um, I did a little bit of reading. There's a long profile in the New Yorker. Um, I'll. I'll try to remember to put a link into that I was saving till after I'm done because I, I don't like to read about the book before the thing. I don't want to get, I don't know, front loaded with expectation mm-hmm. or particular analysis. But I've been looking forward to that. But what a profile picture, I should say. This is real deep content. 
but he's got one of the lenses of his glasses like blacked out like an eye patch. Oh. And I'm so sorry that the attack happened, mm-hmm. but damn if it doesn't look cool. You, you wouldn't trade it, but it looks awesome. It's a wonderful, it's an amazing profile picture. It reminds me of James Joyce and his eye patch. Literary eye patches, top 10 literary eye patches. That's something I can Are there even um, 10? Anyway, well, we could talk about that later. Um, so it's kind of... It feels like it could be the last Rushdie book, not not because of the attack or anything. It was it was done before, but it feels like a a distillation of a lot of the more straight up storytelling things Rushdie's cares about. It's historical fiction, but it's totally not. There's fantabulism, and the main character it lives for two hundred years, and you know stuff that really couldn't happen. But he's so interested in reimagining history, um, integrating history and mythology and contemporary politics. You can go find a summary because I don't think it really matters because so much of it is the feeling. But he is he's manifestly thinking about um, fractures and breaks in India's history, places where there was violence and what can be filled what the imagination can do to fill in those cracks and fissures and a lot of this is focused on women and feminism like how how to tell stories how to reinsert insert uncover rediscover or through through literary work itself create out of imagination places of of possibility and healing and usable fictional histories i thought it was re- he does the world building as on the level of the sentence of stories within stories mm. of character there's such a lush storytelling world in rushdie sometimes it can feel like almost um like pinchonian of like too much right mm. and there's some cases where it's like this but this really feels like the right amount of you get so much and it's so enveloping but it's it's baroque without being rococo to use art history. I, you know, it, it has mm-hmm. that lushness and that degree of decoration without feeling suffocating. It's really great. I'm so glad it's good, um, and I can really recommend That's it. I think it would be a, a good first rushdie for people. Honestly, I you was know, 380 going to pages, ask. so it's long, but it's not super long, um, and it's complicated. But let it wash over you. Don't get too involved in. Um, this place versus this place and that name versus that name. It's myth and legend and stories and histories and empires and people. And I, I really thought it was fantastic. So I'm, I'm so glad to be able to report oh, that. I'm so glad to hear that. And I was going to ask you to speak to all the historical elements of it. It was something I had to overcome in my first few readings of Rushdie yeah. was that like, oh no, I am not deeply familiar with nope. these moments of India's history that he's reimagining. And so I'm glad to hear, if you're saying it's a good like first entry point for folks into Rushdie, I think that also means that it's fine if you don't know all of the details mm-hmm. of the history no. you can go with the story. Yeah, I don't think you do. I mean, if you so, so, some of it is ma- so much of it is also made up or altered that I don't know how much it helps you even if you do know it very well. I mm. think if probably you're Indian or from some of these locations specifically, you might have particular valences or levels of appreciation or interest. But on a surface level reading is just sort of an average Joe. Um, that reads Rushdie novels. I mean, that's not 
the most average person in the world. But like I, I came to it and be like, let it wash over you, man. Yeah. You're going to get so much of it. And there's pieces and there's players – uh, there's pieces in, in episodes that probably do mean more to you if you're more intimately involved or it's a firsthand experience or it's your culture or language or belief system or mythological tradition. But being outside of it almost completely, except that it's written in an English I understand, I, I didn't feel alienated at all. I really didn't. Mm-hmm. If anything, it had a sort of transporting effect. Um that was really wonderful. I don't know that I would start with this if you're just if I'm doing a reading pathway. The sh- short yeah. story collection East West is probably where I would start. I often think of short story collections a good place to start because, you know, if, the, if one is mystifying to you, the next one was a little bit of a different. You can get a kind of a, a tasting menu from an author in a short story collection. Um, but this is as an approachable um, novel as he's written in a in some time, um, and maybe ever. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, oh. but it's maybe ever question mark is. Um, and that's not to say it's really approachable. I'm not saying that. No. The threshold, uh, we're grading on a Rushdian curve here. Um, but Victory City um, also listened to Reading the Glass um, by Evan Rappaport, hmm. which is a nonfiction book about modern um, seagoing vessel captaining uh, that just came out. Listen to it on I audio. Tell Bob. <laughs> it was great. Bob, it's about, you know, the weather and jet streams and modern and contemporary ocean going, but also the history of how we discovered the jet stream. And um, yeah, it's great. It's, it's it's kind of perfect. It's, this is the memoir I've talked about before. Someone who does something either interesting or, or available quotidian that you have some access to, and the world is complicated, and someone who does a specialized job has a lot to tell you about how the world is put together. Um, and it has nature and climate and tech and international trade. There's no story here. It's kind of organized around a particular topic as relates to being a modern sea captain. Um, but I really found it's great. It's, uh, the dad book quotient here is like nine and a half out of 10, I would say. Um, but if you're interested in the world, uh, you'll find it pretty interesting. He's he's clearly a book reader, very very well written, um, mm. as well. So that's uh, Reading Glass by Evan Rappaport. That sounds Loved great too. Loved them both. Two good ones for me. It's nice to be on that roll. I'm kind of I'm in a good yeah. pocket too. Um, speaking of transporting, I just read The Half Known Life by Pico Iyer. And first yeah, of all, I am did. mad at all of you who did not tell me to read Pico Iyer. I told you about <laughs> this before it came out. Oh, Pico, uh, I just talked about, okay, go, you be bad. I'm not, it's not about me, even though you made it about me, sort of, by being mad. <laughs> it's so good. I'm going to go back yeah. to like so much of his backlist. Um, so mm. the whole, the book is about, he's a travel writer. The book is about places that are presented as paradise but this is not like go to bali kind of paradise he spends time in iran jerusalem broom in the outback of australia the himalayas Kashmir, sri lanka he's in japan in the mountains at a place that's like the end of it's the place people go on buddhist pilgrimages he's in varanasi india and it's it is just transporting. Like, what does it mean for a place and its people when that place is presented as a kind of paradise? Are we talking? What and what does paradise even 
mean. Obviously, there's spiritual connotations to a lot of the places that he's visiting. The chapter on Jerusalem, you just feel like you're like in those spaces, looking at people of different faiths be crowded in together, both celebrating and fighting about who has ownership of them. You can feel the quiet in the mountains at the, mm-hmm. you know, Buddhist temples in Japan. He's asking, like, how does our pursuit of paradise change the place? It's just evocative and so richly detailed and very like the writing itself is very meditative. I was not shocked when he reveals like late in the book that he spends a good chunk of each year doing like several retreats at a Benedictine monastery (laughs) in Big Sur. Like, I get you, Pico Iyer. Do you want a traveling companion? Uh, And he's asking like, does our really, I think at the heart of the book is this question of does our longing for an experience of paradise distract us from the beauty of what's right in front of us in reality? And he sort of comes to this conclusion that uh, about impermanence and about embracing beauty as it is in front of us. And one of the quotes that I wrote down was that in this vision of an afterlife, the fact of things passing was not a cause for grief so much as a summons to attention, all the light or beauty we could find. We had to find right now Um, because he's he's talking about an assumption that maybe there is not an afterlife. Um, What does it mean to like seek out holy places versus just let the happy confusion of your life, and I love that phrase, the happy confusion, be itself and find the holiness inside of it. This sort of like secular sacred is a, that's a pocket I really like to be in. Mm -hmm. And I I knew I was going into great travel writing when I picked this book up because I know of Ayer's reputation, but that it was going to be so dialed into a view of the world and an experience of the world that I aspire to embody um, that I, you know, I think at my, at my best moments, like standing inside a mountain, (laughs) I can kind of get there, but Pico Iyer, he's got a couple decades of practice on me and it it feels like a really great model. I really, really loved it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah, and I am just about finished with Sink by Joseph Earl Thomas, which comes out on Tuesday as you're listening to this show on Monday. It's a memoir. It's really good and really difficult. Like, this is one of those books that I don't know who I would recommend it to. Um, It's a memoir of his childhood, which was defined by abuse of kind of all kinds from family and close family and the people that he spends his close time with. Um, It's written in third person as if it's a story that he's narrating about someone else. And that distancing, I think, serves as a, a useful tool for him, but also for the reader, because you can then imagine that you're just being told this story. And uh, it is it does do kind of a transport. It's an interesting transporting thing where I have to keep reminding myself, like, this is not fiction that I'm reading. This is someone telling me the story of his life, but he's not saying I, and I, it would be, I think almost impossible to read if he were. So like the, just all the trigger warnings for it. It's, it's tough, but beautiful. And he is telling a story also about how, getting into video games and geek culture gave him access to a community that was 
I think really nothing short of life-saving. Um, but if you're looking for like a celebration of geek culture as life affirming, this ain't it. Um, it's, it got blurbs from Kiese Lehman. And I think if you read heavy and mm. enjoyed it, this is going to be, this is in that space. Um, Carmen Maria Machado also blurbed it. It feels not dissimilar, uh, from in the dream house. So my recommendation there, if you read those books and found value in them or something like it, it is definitely worth spending time with. But it is it is very tough, and I'm going to have to read something like very gentle <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I had my eye on this, and I knew you were reading it, and I, I don't know if I can do this right now, Rebecca. I, this is tough, if man, because it's the kind of thing I, I would like to read. I'm like, I don't know. And I don't like to draw a line around things or under things and say, not for me. Um, but the truth is my time is limited. And I guess I want to be on the edge sometimes. Um, do I want to be down in the hole? I don't know. I, I'm mm-hmm. glad it's good. And I hope it yeah, goes well. That's, it's a good way to put it. It is you are in the hole with him. Um, it's really brave, but very tough. Um, just going back to Pico Iyer for a second. This mm-hmm. I, I don't have much. Well, I try not to get on rant raft. Well, no, it's not even a rant raft. But like Pico Iyer, um, did you read it or did you listen to um, Half Known Life? Did you? Say I read it. it? I read it. the audiobook is it. very good of that. He narrates it himself. Okay. But once I read that, and I'd read um, oh last night in Tokyo and Autumn Light, the last two he that I only got to Pico Iyer mm-hmm. a couple years ago, and I don't even remember why. So I went to go back to the backlist, and I did those on audio and really liked him. His first five or six books are not available on audio, which is oh, wild still now. And there's his first one, which I heard of a long time ago, called Video Night in Kathmandu. Um, here's the slug line. Mohawk haircuts in Bali, yuppies in Hong Kong, and Rambo rip-ops in the movie house on <laughs> Bombay are just a Absolutely, few of the jarring yes. images Iyer brings back um, from his travels. Like It sounds like the kind of book that Anthony Bourdain would want to be reading while he's traveling, and I want this in my life, but I need an <laughs> audiobook version. And we're still not there yet. That's all I'm saying. There's still, there's a I lot of, you. this isn't deep backlist either. This is a really well-known literary mm-hmm. travel writer that has like 15 books to his name. And like, there's five or six of them. Like really anything, let's see, does it do, a, does um, Falling Off the Map have an audio book? Falling Off the Map is very good. Nope. Falling Off the Map, which is his follow-up to Knights in Kathmandu, also doesn't have an audio book. I think A Beginner's Guide to Japan does. Nope, Beginner's Guide to Japan, that's two years ago, doesn't have an audiobook. Don't like this. It's oh, tough. I don't like that for you either. Autumn yeah. Light's going to be my next one. Mm. Um, Autumn Light's very, very good. I'm glad to, I'm glad to be on the Pico Iyer train now. Yeah. And not for nothing, these aren't that long, which I like from a travel no. writing book. You, you want to dip it. I want, I want a travel, travel book to be kind of like a long weekend experience 208 yeah, pages yeah, that's what I i'm love... talking about pico iyer yeah yeah half known life is like about 250 yes. i think and he's he goes to eight or nine places so yeah. you don't spend too long in any one of them and he just really it's very sensual in that he it captures act, the actual experience of the senses being in those places i feel like you know what it sounds like and what it smells like and what it feels mm-hmm. like to be there and he doesn't need like 90 pages per location to do that yeah. It's really great. Autumn Autumn Light doesn't have maybe Half Known World is his first audiobook. Is that possible? But anyway, no one cares about this except me. I find this interesting. <laughs> um, that's our show. <laughs> now that I'm down the 
down the audiobook rabbit hole. Um, here's a question. Would I prefer there to be no crazy. audiobooks of these or for there to be some AI re- narrator? This, this is the, the oh. situation. When we were talking about this the other week, this is the, I should have had this or this would have been the case. I guess I would try an AI version of, of Video Nights in Kathmandu. I'd, I'd try it. I would. Sure. Anyway, um, bookriot.com slash listen to get show notes. You can also email us podcast at bookriot.com. We know it's James Daunt named, not James Blunt. Though it's funny to think of James Blunt <laughs> yeah. as the CEO. Thanks for of, saving me from that one. Yeah, no, it's okay. Um, I'm sure I've done millions of things. He sits down at his piano like, done this every for morning me. and <laughs> ponders <laughs> what he's going to do. <laughs> what if James Daunt started giving his interviews like in the style of James Blunt songs? Actually, this is a yeah. task for chat GPT. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, like Andy Hunter is in charge of Bookshop. It's not Hunter Biden. Um, that would be a completely other right. mess, um, <laughs> oh God, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Patreon, we did. We talked about love stories last week, and then today we're going to record um, something weird. This is a weird Jeff idea. We're going to see how it's going to go, Rebecca. I'm not so sure. It might be fine, but we get to play around on Patreon. Go check <laughs> well, it out, patreon.com slash podcast to uh, see what we're doing up over there. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Rebecca, thanks so much. Thank <music> you.